1124, faith which saves. This is Romans 10, 5 through 17. And um, in way of intro, as we think about this text, we, we are reminded that at the beginning of time that God created, he gave Adam and Eve. And we often think about the one tree in the garden, that there was a tree of the knowledge of good and evil that they were not to eat of. Uh, but there was also another tree called the tree of life. And the promise was there that if they did not, if they, they took dominion over the earth, and the only thing they refused to do is to not eat of that one tree. So they didn't disobey God in that. That was the covenant stipulation. Take dominion, name the animals, be married, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, but don't eat of that one tree. That's the one thing you're not to do. And they were to trust God that that was a forbidden thing for a reason. And then at the end of their life, they would be rewarded if they were righteous with eternal life. They could take of the tree of life and be rewarded. Disobey and eat of the tree of knowledge, however. And instead of the tree of life, the Bible says, God said, you will die. These were the covenant stipulations. And you know the story. And it's the reason why the world is as it is today. is foggy and cloudy and full of death. And our own hearts wander and are easily deceived. Because Adam and Eve, our first parents, replaced God, trust in God's word with a form of self-sufficiency. They knew better than God. And this, in Romans, the book of Romans is explaining how God makes things right again. What is the gospel and why is it really good news? In Romans 10, specifically verse 5 through 17, in some ways is a summary of Romans thus far, but the emphasis... Unlike nine, where chapter 9, where the emphasis is on God, God's side of the equation. What did God alone do that only God can do? That was choose and elect and justify. Now the emphasis in Romans 10 is in the responder. What is the human side of salvation? Meaning, not that we earn salvation, but how must a person respond? For it is not a passive response, but an active response. There is a call to obey the gospel, to believe, to have faith. Remember, this is obedience. This is a commandment. You must believe. But what is faith? And why faith? And what is faith in? What is the nature of saving faith? So for this, friends, please stand for the reading of God's holy word. Romans 10, 5 through 17. Page eleven twenty four. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who shall ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith. That we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the, day, from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing on riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him 
of whom they have never heard. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. This ends the reading of God's holy word. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord will stand forever. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. Now there are three parts to this message. First, true faith and what it rejects. Second, true faith and what it believes. And third, what true faith does. So the first, true faith and what it rejects. uh, Verses 5 through 7, for Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law. That the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But if But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. Now how is a sinner made right with God? How can the world be made right? How do you answer that nagging voice in your head that says something is wrong? Or if you're informed by God's law, You might even recognize that, and you should recognize that God actually, um, he doesn't send us on some wild journey to discover ourselves. And once we feel like we have got some sort of, you know, kind of euphoria, then then we're going to be made right. It's not some inner, you know, psychological therapy that God gives us. But no, it's different, altogether different. In fact, that would just be another delusion. that The gods of this world that Satan would have us believe. But no, the truth is this. No one will enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are righteous. This is crucial. Righteousness is rightness with God. It is the status that is necessary to enter the kingdom of heaven. To take the tree of life, it is based upon the law of God. The Ten Commandments, the ethic laws, the theonomic laws for the nation and society, the ceremonial laws and sacrifices, the promise and the covenant stipulation is this. They're all based on the same promise. If you do this, you will live. If you are righteous, you will live. Now, many people think that since Adam and Eve came, God has just changed his standards. Like, meaning, if you're sincere enough in saying you love God, then you'll live. Or if you're enough of a victim by society's standards, if you're part of that victim class, then you will be kind of by, you know, be kind of swept under the door and you'll just get into heaven by that standard. But the Bible is very clear. God expects perfect obedience. Leviticus 18.5, you shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Now, I want you to notice in the passage here in Scripture, you're often going to see this, if you, then this will happen. If you don't, then that will happen. These are called covenant stipulations. I mean, in, in one sense, it's God the Father, as we would with our own kids, saying, look, like, here's the expectations. If you don't obey them... This will happen, but if you do obey them, you will get a reward. As parents, we often, we give, uh, you know, 
there's, there's proactive discipline, and then there's responsive discipline, punishments, or rewards. We reward good behavior, and we punish bad behavior. Well, God does the same thing. It's not, and the standard is perfect. So we, could, we would never want to be naive to that. You don't just float through life and, and just kind of grab Christian ideas and say, well, now I'm a Christian. No, you actually can know if you're truly a Christian. And the apostle would have us know that, the Romans. But first, we must know what makes us a Christian. What do we must believe in? And so there is a constant, throughout Scripture, you get these covenant stipulations. If you do this, you will live. If you don't do this, you will die. Or if you disobey, you'll be cursed. So that's Leviticus 18.5. It's a, it's a summary, basically. Everything is summarizing it. All it is is a repeat of Genesis 1 and 2. Galatians 3.10 says this, For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be to everyone who does not abide in all the things written by the book of the law and do them. Deuteronomy 27.26 says, Cursed be anyone who does not conform to the words of the law by doing them. And all the people shall say amen. And again, the key is this. God's righteous and holy standard has not changed one iota. There's not some study committee in some, you know, woke denomination somewhere that's going to come up with some new uh, mark of sexuality according to the word standards. All of a sudden we're going to go, well, that, you know, God's standard counts until, you know, we became so wise in the 21st century because the experts said something. No, God's ethical standard is the same. Why? Because God created us male and female, and he knows what's best. God's ethical standards are actually the normative and best way to live according to our biology, according to the way he created us. But the Bible says, look, you must obey this. You must trust me. James 2.10 says this, for everyone who keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all. So God does not say, you know what? 65% is a D minus. Well, you made it. Geez, if you could get 75, C, B plus, and if you're really that, you know, that overachiever, maybe you'll get like an A minus and you'll make it. You know, because the standard, of course, is as long as you're not Adolf Hitler or, you know, Epstein or somebody like that, you know, you're going to do okay. Well, that's not the way it works. Every human being is an image bearer, and we all have a perfect standard. Notice here, friends, when we talk about this, we transition here also to what, here the first part is, what do we need to reject? So we reject all false ideas of what God expects. But we also do this. We recognize that true faith in the Lord seeks a righteous standard or righteousness. Not merely stability or a higher life or just mere kind of euphoric happiness. True faith necessarily rejects all the alternative competing religions that are present in the heart of man. Do you understand that? A lot of people come to Jesus because they're willing to try him out because they want to go to heaven and not to hell. But as Justin Peters so sa says this, look, we are also, we're not just saved from hell, we're saved from sin. And we don't just pursue God in order to punch our ticket to heaven, we pursue God for righteousness. We must believe that there is righteousness that's given, a righteous standard. Proverbs 3.5 says this, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes, fear the Lord, and turn away from evil. And again we have here in Romans, uh, in verses um, 6 and 7, that sneaky 
part that we're always warned about, and that is trusting in our own heart. Okay? Many people think, look, the heart is basically good. It's just maybe disillusioned or misinformed. Um, and if we just, you know, would kind of have the right science, the right medicine, the right therapy, the right, you know, secrets given, even the right works of the law, the right religious endeavors, the right church, by nature, the heart will kind of be found into balance. You know, I mean, the, the, our, our culture today is dominant, you know, with listen to your heart for it's calling to you. <laughs> Bible says, no, don't listen to your heart. That's like the exact opposite of what you want to do. But isn't that what Satan did, right? He didn't just say, well, look, God's just a big meanie. And this is a really tasty tree. He says, did you not know? Listen to your heart on this matter. Your heart actually knows better than God. Your heart is godlike. Your heart is perfect. It's everything around you that's wrong. That's all the Bible says. And God obviously knew that this is nothing's changed in all the years of human history. The same sneaky, rebellious spirit as it were today that was with Satan and, and with Adam and Eve. He, he doesn't change his tactics. He just kind of changes a little bit of the window dressing. But the same thing is here. Trust in your heart. The Bible says do not trust in your heart. And again, when we say heart here... We are talking about nothing less than the entire control system of your being, but we're also talking about this. It includes your mind, your emotions, your will. Everything about the command center of who you are is, is in the heart. True Christianity is only for the person who understands this truth, that you must be righteous and believes that Christ alone took away sin and simultaneously grants righteousness to a person. This is the absolute key. True faith believes not that you trust in your heart and you can do it, but that you can't do it and Christ alone did it. Why? Because God has a righteous standard that we must be perfect and that's why it was, it was required that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin and lived a perfect life, substituting himself for us, earning the righteous rewards of our faith, and then dying on the cross for our actual Justice for the wrath of God, right? So when we go to heaven someday, we, we are going to present to the Lord a token of actual good works. The meritorious works of Christ that now we believe and trust in. Okay? So it isn't enough to just say, I'm forgiven. No, I am righteous. I must be righteous. You must obey God perfectly. True faith and trust in the Lord. But what true faith rejects is that this, I, in order to trust in Christ alone, I reject trusting in my heart alone. Now, what he's doing here is he's reminding us this, that Satan loves nothing more than for people to have the idea of religiosity, or like the Pharisees, where you say, look, okay, I'll, ta I'll take, you know, Christianity, it's, it's a good way of living, um, I can, um, I can trust in the Lord, I can do this. I can obey God now. I can make myself right in the eyes of God. Or, um, you know, I believe the gospel that Jesus actually died on the cross to get me started in life, but now I'm, I'm, I, can, I can do this. I can prove to God. And many of you, many of us, if you were raised in that type of kind of um, conversion-type environment or like say-a-sinner's-per-environment or even revivalistic environment, you know how 
difficult and how much guilt there is about, Jesus. have I done enough? You know, here I had that euphoric high when I walked the aisle once, and I remember my spiritual birthday, and I prayed a sinner's prayer, and I remember the camp meetings, and now I go, man, have I, have I done enough? Have I proven it enough? Or, you know, yeah, I, I, maybe I haven't done enough, and I need to prove myself to God. See, again, remember the Pharisees, the problem was, not that they lowered the righteous standard, but they made the righteous standard beyond the righteousness of God, right? They, 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 they cared about righteousness. They cared about the truth. They were not licentious livers. I mean, maybe they were privately. But they thought, look, I can, I can ascend this. I can prove to God that somehow I am right enough. I think that's what we have when we see this passage. Who can ascend the ladder to Christ? So meaning this. I can, uh, Christ is here as a, a moral example for me, and I can grab onto that ladder, and I can ascend along with Jesus. So that I can be righteous someday. In many ways, that's Roman Catholicism, right? They recognize that Jesus Christ died on the cross for our sins. But that he came to help you start your Christian life, and thus you must be righteous enough when you get to heaven, or else you've got to go through purgatory, and there's never security there. It's constantly insecure. Or, I think the other text here, maybe we would say, I can prove myself to Christ in my lowliness, by my self-generated humility and loathing. Right? There's two types of people in the world. There's those that are going to be righteous and self-righteous, and those that are going to be self-doubting all the time and prove how miserable they are to the Lord. Right? So, I'm not going to be like the first. I can never do all those good works, but I'm just going to play victim all the time. Or I'm going to play naive all the time. Or I just don't even want to know the standard. I, I'm just a simple person that can say, look, you know, I, I don't want to do all the, you know, try to prove myself to God. But, you know, God will accept me because I just am contrite a lot. But no, the, the Bible says you've got to be righteous. I mean, in some ways, this is post-modernity, right? Or the modern therapeutic movement. And once you accept this motion, once you accept this notion, there are many ways to God. That I'm either always getting good enough for God to accept my climb up the ladder, or if I am debasing myself enough for God to pity me by my show of humility. Today, it's choose your own adventure spirituality. And I think in some ways, um, you know, the text here reminds us that you go either in one of those two paths, but everybody wrestles with guilt and fallenness, and what does it mean to be made right? But Satan loves nothing more than that, but he wants you on the wrong path to that path, either by denying the righteousness of God or thinking that somehow you can achieve it. Obedience to the law is good. We want a nation that has standards according to God's law. You don't want the alternative. That's what's happening in the cities today. You don't want that. However, do-goodism, conservative politics are good, but they make for horrible religion in and of themselves. You are not accepted merely by God because you're not woke or because you vote for a conservative candidate or because you have certain family values that America or even that are Christian family values. No, you must be born again. You must be righteous. Refusing to live life on my own terms outside of God's law or presuming that if I don't play the game, I don't get judged for not trying, that's the other side of it. So either, again, and, and repeat, you either do really good things, stand up for the truth, 
Or you just kind of think you're going to fall under the mirror. You know, I'm not going to make commitments. I want vagueness. I'm going to play dumb. I'm not going to make commitments because then I would have to hold to a righteous standard. So I better as well just be the non-committal person. I mean, I think in, in many ways, this is why people like, we, we talk about this here as a church, you know, why, why do these big kind of mega churches that, that, that preach just uh, toast and cookies every Sunday and never address the real hard issues of life and never go deep into the text, why do they grow still? People like shallow religion. They want a low threshold. You want to go, look, I could be a Christian and have all of my comforts as well. I don't want a God who would actually demand things of me. So the Bible says you gather on yourself teachers who will tickle your ears with what you want to hear. I'm amazed. Even today I get you know, messages from people that will complain about where their church is at and like our pastor, they never teach about truth. Well, in some ways I would challenge one well, at some point... Why are you still there? And what I've come to realize is many, they, they actually like that. Because they only have to show up once a month and they can kind of be against things and yet still not have to deal with their own heart. They don't want a church or a place that would actually make demands. Let's say you need to gather weekly. You need to follow the Lord. You need to obey him. True faith rejects all these notions. True faith is based on what the word of God actually declares in the law of God. The heart is sinful and deceived. We must be saved. We must be born again. So the answer is this in verse 7 and 8 in that rhetorical question, or 6 and 7. Who will ascend to the Lord by their own works? Not me. Not you. Or how about who will descend by their own self-loathing, which is just another form of pride? No one, especially me. No, the question is this, if we cannot save ourselves, where is righteousness found? Now, here's what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the righteousness is found in Jesus Christ. And if you search far enough for Christ, and you read enough books, and you do enough good things, and you read good theology, you will find an accurate Jesus Christ. It doesn't say that. No. The irony is he says reject your own heart. And yet it does say this, the word is near to you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. And friends, you understand how good of news this is. It means this, the gospel for you is hidden in plain sight. Just waiting for somebody to preach it, proclaim it. It's based on a word. It's believing the truth. When my grandparents passed away, a number of years ago, they had um, a number of old antique pieces. And um, as the family was gathered around, kind of distributing all grandpa and grandma's stuff, um, my, my mom and dad, every time it was their turn to, to get something, they were thrilled because they ended up getting a lot of the fun antiques that they'd always liked. And at the end of the day, at the end of the, you know, distribute grandpa and grandma's stuff, there was kind of the, you know, the, 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 the barrel or the dustbin of stuff nobody wanted. And somebody grabbed up Grandpa's old commentaries. They sent them to me because I was a pastor, and they figured I'd like them, and I did like them. They were good. And my dad grabs this picture at the end of, you know, the stuff that nobody wanted because Dad liked the frame. I well, we could redo this, and this is a nice frame. So they bring it home, and he stuffs it somewhere in his storage closet. And a few years later, he starts to take it out. He's looking at it, and my, my mom says, you know, 
that picture actually looks like it's not a throwaway. I don't know why, it just it looks more quality than we realize. So dad, instead of throwing it away to keep the frame, he takes it to the local art person. $10,000 later, he's discovered the value of that, hidden in plain sight. In 2007, the world-famous violinist Joshua Bell, uh, working with one of the papers in D.C., um, world-famous violinist. If you're in the violin subculture, you know who he is. But he went in D.C. and he dressed up as a homeless person that was going to collect money. And he started on his Stradivarius as people were going by, playing the music the best that he could, which is a world-class music. And they wanted to see in people's busy lives if anyone would stop and recognize what was hidden in plain sight. And sure enough, at the end of the day, they had done this thought experiment, and he had collected $50, and one person stopped long enough to recognize, okay, wait a second, this is a maestro. But most people were so busy that they did not recognize who was in front of their eyes, and that they were hearing and seeing good art right before them. Now, what is truth? It is proclaimed to you. It is not hidden anymore. But it is not that you need to go near to God or find him by ascending the ladder or descending the ladder. But he comes near to you and he is near. This is grace. Grace is not merely Jesus Christ being accessible someday and achievable on my own ascending or descending. But it is given to us by faith today. You understand this? The truth was there. It's hidden in plain sight. The requirement is that you and I would believe it. And today, after this message, you cannot go home today and say, well, I'm naive. I haven't heard the truth. You are responsible to do with the truth when you've heard it. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Friends, you understand this. Grace is not merely that God died for some people. Or that he died in order to make a way to heaven. But he died to make the way. And the way is accessible to you today. He comes near. The search is over. Today look at verse 8. If you confess with your mouth. And believe in your heart. And you believe God you will be saved. You won't be saved someday. You will be saved today. John MacArthur writes this. His point is that the righteousness of faith does not require some impossible odyssey across the universe to find Christ. That is, do you understand how good a news that is? It means whether you're young or old, believe and trust in him. And if you've been a Christian for a while, he didn't stop being near to you. Believe and trust in him. Remember, he is the God who upholds your faith. And loves you and cares for you. And causes you to turn again to his righteous standard. But what does it say? Again, verse 8, the word is near to you in your mouth and your heart. That is the word of faith that we must proclaim. So again, we reject the idea that somehow we can ascend or descend to find God. We also reject the idea that God has a half-righteous standard. No, we must be righteous. But the righteousness is provided in Christ and we don't have to go on an odyssey to find it. It's right here today. It's granted by faith, by believing in this. Now, we move on. So then, 
we, we, we see what we reject. We, we reject our own heart's notion. We reject the notions of the world. But what do we receive? What do we actually believe? So part one is this, what faith rejects. Part two is what does faith believe? So what is, when we say faith, faith has an object. Or you place your faith in something, okay? When you, get, when you leave church today, I, I don't think anyone um, came in here in a helicopter, and nobody came in here on an airplane. Nobody's parachuted in. And if you were, I apologize. I didn't notice. You all came in an automobile or you walked. When you go home, you are placing, when you to, for you to get back home today, you're placing your faith in something. But it's not anything. So nobody's going to leave here today and, and, and going to say, well, I'm going to place my faith in airplanes to get me home today. No, because you're riding in a car. Right? And car has certain components. Or a truck. Or you're walking. So faith, you are placing your faith in the design of this car and the ability of gasoline and the ability of whoever driving the car to get you home. You're, you're placing your faith in its specific faith and a specific thing. Now, if you go home today and you decide to, um, I don't know, maybe you go on the boat and you're going to cruise around the lake or you know what, or ride your bike or whatever it is you do, you're placing your faith in something, but it's a different thing. But the same thing is you're placing your faith in it. So the question is, is for, for us, what does saving faith do? Like, what are we actually placing our faith in? And it's specific, okay? Faith is not general. The scripture is very clear on who Christ is. It's not just any old idea or vision or dream or feeling. Look at this. Look at verse 9 through 13. There are four definitive statements that all begin with the letter or with F-O-R. What faith believes and trusts in. What does it mean to be saved? How are you saved today? What do you need to place your trust in? Look at this. Verse 9. This is a summary of all of Romans. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For it is with the heart that one believes and is justified. And with the, one, with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. The same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So four statements here as we walk through the text. First, verse 10. Faith believes and trust in this. Salvation is received by the total of a person or the entirety of a person. Look at what it says here. It says, you must engage the heart and the mouth. What is, he, what is he talking about? Well, in one sense, he's saying this. He's rejecting the idea that salvation or faith is merely an outward statement. It certainly must include a confession of what is believed, right? You must trust and believe that Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead. So theology matters. Truth matters. The message of the gospel matters. The gospel is not merely, I'm saying good news about Jesus or believing good news about Jesus in general, but very specific news about Jesus. Who he was, what he did, and what it accomplished. Here, it's just part of that. It's summarized. God raised him from the dead. Resurrection matters. Why? Because we recognize if we're going to be saved, we need to recognize death had to happen. We need to realize what we're being saved from. We need to realize it actually is accomplished in Jesus. The alternative is, look, I don't know, Jesus was a good guy, but I'm still, I think I can save myself from the dead if I do good enough or I'm, I, I'm lowly enough. No. 
He already did that for you and for me. And he was raised. But he also, we confess that Jesus is Lord. So it's not merely an outward statement, but it includes an actual confession. But on the other side, it's not merely good feelings about Jesus, but it requires a commitment of an entire person, including a heart change. You must feel it. Now, I don't think here he's talking about two steps. Like there's step one, you believe in your heart, and step two, you you, you confess the Lord. No, he's talking about a total commitment of the heart and the mouth. And here he's merely just breaking it down. Why? Because he's also saying this, justification and salvation. Certainly, there is a distinguishing between justification and salvation. Justification being made right with God. It was only accomplished by Christ. Salvation is how it's applied to us. We are saved and there is a, you are you were saved, you're being saved, and you will be saved. That is distinguished from justification, but it's never separated. Meaning this, they're part of the same package. Those whom God justifies, he will glorify. And you who have been saved, you are being saved, you will be saved. He will continue to save you through the rest of your earth life. He will persevere your faith. So, justification and salvation here is talking about total salvation, past and future. They're intertwined. It's distinguished, but it's not separated from and also in the same thing here, the heart is distinguished but not separated from the mouth. So meaning this, it's not merely an outward like I, I can robotically confess something. You must know it deeply. You must believe it. But if you believe it, you will be willing to confess it. This is why when we have baptisms, or this is why I encourage us in Sunday school to share the gospel because it's crucial for a person to be able to outwardly express truth. Now, some people are gifted as communicators, and some people are called to be public speakers and preachers, and some are not. But every Christian must be able to articulate the gospel and share that. And they must be able to say it. Why? Because when you have baptism, it is a public declaration. This is who Jesus is. So even when we, ha when we have young children that are take communion and are baptized and we affirm them, we do I do require them to at least be able to express the gospel. Now, they may not go into all of the depth of, of the theological covenant of the Old and New Testament, but they can at least express Jesus Christ died for my sins. And I know what he did to be raised from the dead, and that's crucial. Again, that's why we, during Sunday school, we have people share the gospel. Because it's good to practice. Why? Because right here, you have to be able to confess it. And you have to be able to confess that Jesus is Lord. But it must come from within. To believe inward is also distinguished but not separated from confessing for others to hear. So it's both, I believe this, and I believe this if I'm the only person on the planet Earth. But I'm also willing to confess this to others. In this context, they are synonyms. John MacArthur says this, not a simple acknowledgement that he is God and Lord of the universe, since even the demons acknowledge this to be true, James 2.19. Personal conviction without reservation that a person that Jesus is a person's master and sovereign. This phrase includes when he says Jesus is Lord, repenting from sin, trusting in Christ for salvation, and submitting to him as Lord. So it's a total, like, I am, it's a total commitment, Christ is Lord. It means everything else in my life is not Lord anymore. Sex is not lo Lord. Work is not Lord. Fame is not Lord. Feeling really guilty and bad all the time is not Lord the internet is not Lord. Those self-help books are not Lord. Resting on my laurels is not Lord. Self-pity is not Lord. Gossip, all these things are not Lord. Christ is Lord. Justification and salvation. This is the righteousness that God demands. 
that we would be saved from something. That's our unrighteousness and saved from death. But it's provided in the righteousness of Christ, justified, just as if I've never sinned, just as if I was always his, just as if I'd always obeyed. Remember when Jesus Christ died, when he came to earth, he came to earth to fulfill certainly covenantal love demands of the Father. He chose to love us, but he actually did what he did when he came to earth is actually satisfy legal demands. A perfect and total life of righteousness had to be lived. So when, when, when we say, God, we must be perfect, when we, when we look at Scripture in Old and New Testament, as Christians, we could say, look, that's true. And I am not perfect, but Christ was perfect. And I believe his righteousness is given to me. It's a perfect righteousness on my account was granted to me. He was raised from the dead. This is crucial. He conquered death. Therefore, I will live in him. Second, he is living. Um, so that means he's, he's, he's not a dead savior. He is transcendent and imminent. He is alive today. He wasn't just Lord for them back then, but he is living today. Christ died, but he was raised again. So that's number one. We believe that's the long part. Salvation is received by the total of a person. The totality of a person. Second, salvation is offered to all, as, and the key to receive salvation is the same for all. Now, in this church, in this church building, this was built, I think, 1951. So we're up at 72 years, 72 years of, of uh, this building being here. And if you go through the church building, you'll notice there is probably 40 different doors, and they all have a lock on them. And there is a different lock for every single door. It's a, it's a pain in the rear to figure out, right? So if, if you wander through the church and you think, I don't know, if you think it's funny, I'm just going to lock all the doors. Don't do that because it's really hard to unlope it. However, I do have access. There is one master key. And every door is different, but there is one master key that we keep hidden in the safe and we can open and it works for every single door. I don't know why they had different keys for every door. They did. I'm not sure why they did that. Uh, but they did. But we also, it doesn't matter because we have the master key. Friends, Salvation is offered to all, and to receive salvation is the same for all. Look at verse 11. For scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. Our world, not only does it emphasize the heart and feelings above all, but it also emphasizes division above all. It's only special people who receive the kingdom of heaven. And if you're of the wrong ethnicity, or the wrong sex, or the wrong gender, or the wrong this or that, there's plan B for you. No. If you're a horrid sinner who's made an absolute mess of your life, or if you're the person who's done it really righteously and lived well as a citizen, there's a different plan. No, the Bible says this, everybody's a sinner in the eyes of God, and yet everybody will receive salvation. The master key works for all. Why? Because every single person here is a human being. Despite outward appearances, everybody has the same makeup. You are made a to be a covenant keeper and to be righteous, and every person here has sinned in Adam. Jesus Christ did not come to save individual animals or plants. He came to save human beings. He died for human beings. He died for the world that the world would be redeemed, but he died to save his image bearers, human beings. And it says this, everyone... 
The master key of Christ unlocks the door and it will never be shut again. There is no trick. There is no cruel joke. There is no shame in believing and confessing Christ. If you believe, no matter who you are, you will receive. Whether you are a person from, who, from the deepest throes of the darkest jungle somewhere in some foreign country who's never heard the gospel, has practiced all kinds of medicine, or you're at the highest thrones of Washington, or you're in a prison, or you're a small child, or it doesn't matter where, or just a regular old Joe Schmo, you need to be saved. And it's provided for you if you believe today. It's a universal key. It works. Why? Because it's for human, human beings. And every human being shares the same universal problem. They need righteousness. It's provided. Third, salvation is from the Lord who is for all. Again, this repeats. There is not an ethnicity which changes this plan. There is not a plan B by additions or subtraction. Look at verse 12. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. Now, why does Paul add this? Because in that culture, ironically, similar to today, there was racial differences, or so they thought, or ethnic tension, right? In the New Testament church, there was the idea of those that were Jewish by ethnicity, and those who were Gentile, non-Jewish, different skin color, different traditions, all these different things, there was an idea that, look, the, the Jewish, the Gentile people had to become Jewish in one sense in order to grow as a Christian, in order to receive Christ. That was the Galatian problem. They had to take on all the laws and sacrifices. Well, the Jewish people, they had a huge advantage because that was their tradition makeup, right? Paul says, not only phony on that, but that's, 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 that's accursed thinking. This is why, this is why I hate, and we all should hate, the new social justice movement that is a really a Christian heresy that's been pervading the church over the last 10 years. It, it's evil. It's wicked. Why? It goes directly against texts such as this and many others. What it proclaims is the gospel is not available freely to the privileged class or to the ethnic majority. They must atone for themselves by a couple of steps. They cannot understand it unless they see it through the lens of another culture. Or, on the opposite, if you've got the right intersectionality points, if you're a victim enough, well then the righteous standards of God don't really apply to you. You've, you've been sinned on by others, thus you are not capable of obeying God. Or it's the therapeutic movement we live in today. The world full of trauma, and certainly great sin is put upon other people, but guys, the Lord is powerful. Every image bearer is required, no matter what your background is, required to obey God. Why? Because he doesn't make some subhumans and others true humans. That's why the good news, the God, we proclaim the gospel to the highest powers of Washington and also to the child who's come out of a terrible home life or a terrible environment. Why? You can be saved. And ultimately, above everything else that, that wrong that's happened, you're to be righteous before the Lord. And actually, the only way those other things are going to be made right and you're not going to be a victim for life is if you come to the Lord and are changed by God and are transformed by the power of the Spirit and are made righteous in Christ. Then you can overcome these things. Then you will be changed. Then you can look at your life around you and be forgiven and transformed. Do you understand how good news this is. 
He says, I don't, I don't care in this church at all. You shouldn't either. What skin color people have, <laughs> you know, what background people have, it, it matters not at all. What matters is the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that good news will unify. That is a much stronger unity than anything this world has to offer. That's why it's, it's ironic that if you hear stories of churches that have preached the good news, that have, that have proclaimed and worshiped God in spirit and truth, over time they actually ironically demonstrate a type of ethnic diversity that the world is always pining for. Why? Because when people are truly come to the gospel, people look for churches that preach that. They don't care what color people are. That doesn't always happen, but that's the great irony. That's what I love about LifeSpring. I feel like we, in a northern Minnesota context, it's a very diverse church from our backgrounds and the jobs we have and the family lives we've, we've come from. Why? Because the gospel saves. The Lord saves, and it's free for everybody. And before God, today, you can have faith in the Lord. You must have faith in the Lord. But that's why we, we oppose this wokeness. It's so pernicious. It's so wicked. It's so evil. What does it do? It, it goes to the very heart of what the gospel is, the very message. And it creates nothing but division and false assurance. No, Jesus Christ was a human being, and you're a human being. And he died for all. And anyone who believes and trusts him, there's no distinction. You come in the same door. And the door's about, now that's the good news. That's a free news. That's a simple news. Last thing I want to be is part of one of those woke places. You want to know how complex those things are? You're constantly looking over your shoulder. You're constantly finding some new method. Some new victim class, some new way of atoning for certain things. No, this is freeing. Change it from ethnicity to sexuality, right? No, you must believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And no, you don't get to offer the Lord or change whatever idea you have about what is sexual purity or morality or, or gender or anything like that. No, you're a human being. And this is actually good news for you. You must believe and repent. But when you believe and repent, you could be the the person that God created you to be as male and female. This is redeeming news. It's forgiving news, but it's also redeeming news. God will change you and transform you into his likeness. And it's not that complex. It's simple news. But not only this, look at this. Isn't that what's implied here? He doesn't just say, um, for everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord will be forgiven. See ya. No, he says, no, there'll be riches bestowed on everybody. What are those riches? Eternal life in Christ, the renewal of the mind, the ability now to have favor with God, to live and take dominion over the earth in the way that God has made us to be, an eternal place in heaven, hope in the Lord, a new family of God. Now, there's certainly more things that could be said, so we're going to end on that for this point. And then finally, we're not going to cover this entire text today. I'm going to leave some of this for next week, otherwise we're going way too long. But I want one more point today. Verse 13. Salvation is universally available and universally effective. Verse 13 is a summary of Joel 2, 31 and 32. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And, when, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. From Mount Zion and in Jerusalem shall those, and shall those who escape, the Lord has said, amongst the survivors shall be those whom the Lord calls this gospel is the fulfillment of scripture, of prophecy. The kingdom of God began when Jesus Christ rose from the dead. 
all those Old Testament prophecies, they were waiting for the kingdom of God. Why? Because the kingdom of God begins in the heart of, where sin began in the heart of man, so the kingdom of God begins in the heart of man when somebody calls on the Lord and is saved. And the outworking is an overflow of all those things. Christ came to save sinners, and he came to redeem the world. And look at verse 13. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, here's the promise, he will be saved. This is, again, we began with a covenant. The apostle Paul, or, 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 or I'm sorry, the Lord said to Adam and Eve, if you take of this tree, you will die. But if you obey me, you will live and take the tree of life. Salvation now. It's a tree of life, but it has to be, you have to be saved from, from, from death. And it's been granted to you and I, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So friends, today, everyone, true faith rejects all those ideas that I can atone myself, I can atone for myself. True faith, it believes and trusts in the righteousness of God offered to us and you and I today. So friends, today, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved. And if you are a Christian, thank God you're saved. And it comes through faith, and God is still near to you. If you don't feel like God's near to you often, the problem is our own unbelief. Trust, and it may be hard circumstances, certainly, which play into that. But you know, today, believe and trust again anew. When we take communion in a couple minutes here, remember, this is that which is to focus our lives again on the renewal of the covenant with God. We, don't, we take these elements. These are not magical. Jesus isn't being re-crucified. But they point to very true realities that Jesus Christ had a real body and Jesus Christ's blood was really shed for us since 2,000 years ago. And it's applied to you and I today. So friends, with this, believe and trust in the Lord today. And thank God for his good news. You can be assured that you have real faith today. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for gathering together your saints this morning. And Father, thanks for the word proclaimed and read and believed. And Father, help us all to believe and trust in you today. Father, thank you that faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. And that God, those who believe in you are made righteous with Christ. Father, help us to reject all those false ideas, all those false notions. And help us to believe and trust in the simple gospel message. It is the profound message. It is the true message. Thank you for giving it to us today. And Father, help us as a church to continue to build our lives upon the gospel. I pray that each and every person here, you would help them to believe. And Father, now as we take Holy Communion, as we proclaim that you are Lord, help us, Father, to live lives in agreement with this by our actions, by our attitudes, lives that have been freed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. In your name we pray, amen.